You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 9, and as you turn, I'd like to invite you to stand to read it together. Genesis chapter 9. In verse, we'll begin reading in verse 18. Today will be our, our last Sunday morning, focusing on the life of Noah, uh, his most famous exploit, obviously, Noah and the ark. It took place building an ark, 120 years building an ark and surviving the worldwide flood. And Noah, to this point, has had nothing but positives in his life. And yet today's passage not, doesn't focus on his most famous exploit, It's really his most infamous story this morning, and it kind of leaves you scratching your head a little bit. Uh, For all the wonderful things that Noah accomplished by faith, today's story uh, could skew our perspective on Noah, but rather than uh, affect how we view Noah, because I don't think that's the way that God intended for us to view this passage, I think what it ought to do is help end end up helping us adjust our view of ourselves, And that really is the goal of any message, is that we apply the truth that we hear and that we read. We apply it in such a way in our lives that it makes a difference to us. Uh, We don't ever come to a place where we simply look at a text or look at a passage and it's strictly academic. We want to make sure that we apply a truth. And this one does apply this morning. And I'm excited about the truth, although when you read the story, you'll be thinking, well, that's awkward. It's one of those stories. And one that makes you wonder, why would God include that? But can I, be, can I just be uh, transparent this morning? Sometimes you read Bible stories and you think, well, I wouldn't have put that one in. But I think in some ways that's a proof that God is the divine author of the Bible. Because he does not overlook or skip over the stories that you and I wouldn't want to read about. Because he know, knew it was important for us to see that the human nature, even in men of great faith like Noah. Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. It says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. We'll talk about the reason that's included here in a moment. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread, which, by the way, that was what God wanted them to do after surviving the flood. Verse 20 And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Verse 25, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant." God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. I think we get the idea that Canaan is being, there's a curse on Canaan of servitude or enslavement. Verse 28, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years, 
And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And that you makes you scratch your head a little bit. You're left wondering, why in the world is this story in the Bible? And even more importantly, what can we learn from it? Well, today, uh, I'd, I will look at what I'm calling an unguarded moment. An unguarded moment in Noah's life. And I want you to remember that phrase, an unguarded moment. There are few things more dangerous in our lives than unguarded moments. See, those times when we let our guard down... We've all been affected by unguarded moments, but how we respond to them will determine how seriously they affect our future. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that you bless the reading of it. I pray that you just give us clarity as to how this applies in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Noah's life was one that we would label great for God. I mean, if I was putting a label on Noah, I would say great. He's a great man of God. He's a great man of faith. Just think about his resume. I mean, he's the only righteous man found on the earth in Genesis 6. God was looking at the earth and he saw that there was only wickedness, that the thoughts of mankind were only evil continually. And as he looks, he finds, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord when nobody else was doing right. In a, in a wicked generation, Noah was the only one who pleased the Lord. And God, in the middle of wickedness, God looked at Noah and called him righteous. God then told Noah, again, this is his resume. God told Noah that he would destroy the earth because of the wickedness of mankind. And that Noah would need to build an ark as a means of escaping judgment. So by faith, naturally, then Noah begins building an ark. And for 120 years, he builds this vessel that can float and, escape, and help him and his family escape the judgment. And you know people had to think he was crazy. They'd never seen rain. They'd never seen floods. They'd never seen a big boat, a big ark. And yet Noah kept faith and he obeyed God at everything that God asked him to do. We could read in a couple chapters before this and see every single thing that God asked Noah to do, Noah did it. He kept the faith, he obeyed, and the New Testament even calls him a preacher of righteousness, which means that while he was building the ark, he was sharing the message of God, he was telling people about judgment, and he was trying to get other people to get on board. When the flood began, uh, at, at first, God had told Noah there'd be 40 days of judgment, which may have left him thinking, okay, 40 days of judgment, we can handle that. But the floods didn't recede after 40 days. As a matter of fact, Noah and his family spent over a year floating on the ark. God chose this man to be the one from whom the entire world from this point on would be repopulated. That's quite the resume. I'd have to say that resume is much more impressive than my resume. As he walked off the ark, Noah and his sons, the future was bright. God was happy with them. He offered and sacrificed. It was a sweet-smelling savor to God. Noah has a fresh start. Things are looking good. And then you get to this moment, you would think that the last story about Noah would be a positive one. That the last story about Noah would be kind of like a, tying a ribbon on the package and just saying, this is the kind of life that we should live. Instead, we have a strange and confusing episode at the end of Noah's life, and it really is a blotch on an otherwise flawless resume. And it all happened because he let his guard down. 
And you would think that a man with these credentials and that a man with this experience would not be so inclined to sin. That he wouldn't have a moment where he lets his guard down. But Noah is evidence that we all are prone to a letdown. See, Noah had just finished. The reason I believe that Noah gets to this place where he lets his guard down is because he's just finished a trying season. It was the most difficult season of his life. It was the greatest test that he had ever faced. I mean, imagine this. For 120 years, you've got a construction project. And my wife and I, we built a house at once, and it felt like 120 years. I didn't think it was ever going to end. You ever have a project that just seems like it will not end? And you, you keep, you go, okay, today we're going to make some headway. And after a few days, you look back and you say, it doesn't look like any more progress was made than when I started at the beginning of the week. You ever feel that way? You're, it's like a treadmill and you're just kind of going, you're lots of activity, but not really any progress. Well, can you imagine 120 years? 120 years building an ark at this huge floating vessel. And as you, you can imagine, all of the mocking that he heard, all of the scorn that he heard, as, as people from his vil, near, nearby villages probably started coming, it became a, a bit of a tourist trap, like wall drug. You just got to go see it, you know? I don't know what, I mean, cheap coffee, free coffee, whatever it is. I'm not sure what draws people there, but every time we go, we can't even find a parking place. And I imagine that's a little bit what it was like for Noah. And people are just, they, they would just want to drive by and, and, and laugh at him. Just want to see, you got, can't believe what this guy's doing over here. And, and can you imagine the doubts that arose, maybe even from his family? And, and maybe even within himself, he had doubts. And then after all of that's done, he gets on the ark for seven days, he waits again. And then this catastrophic, worldwide, horrible flood comes and wipes out every living creature that's not on the ark. And then for over a year, he floats on the ark. Takes care of the animals, takes care of his family, and just floats. Add to that, if you read in Genesis chapter 8, you, you start realizing that there's no evidence from the scripture that God even spoke to Noah while he was on the ark. So for a year, it makes you wonder if he thought, if he'd been forgotten by God. Of course, God comes through and they finally exit the ark, but the work was just beginning. Can you imagine? You're coming off the ark and you, and you would think, well, things are kind of set up for our new life. But no, I don't think so. I think he walked off the ark. And if you can imagine the devastation that, that takes place after a flood. You ever seen an area that's been flooded? It's not like, okay, everything's just like beautiful and green and just ready to jump in and get started. No, devastation was everywhere. So as he's walking off, off the ark after 121 years, he's looking around and seeing now we have to start over with a new life. Nobody I knew before is alive. Uh, there's no house for me to live in. There are no crops for me to grow. I've got to start over. And so he starts planting vineyards. But it's not like after the ark was a vacation. They have to start working. And you would have to think then after a while things start to settle down and things start to come together. And so Noah's just come through this very trying experience in his life and they start settling into a new life. Noah became a farmer. He planted a vineyard. The vines begin to produce and you would think that at that point things are starting to get easier. They, they've got a place to live and they've got a, maybe a roof over their head and they've got some things in place. They have a routine. And here's what I think that Noah probably was thinking. He's probably thinking, oh, finally. I can finally relax. I can finally just kind of 
coast a little bit. I mean, uh, the, the vines are producing, we've got a place to live, and we've got these animals that we're raising, and, and we can eat them now, and that's a blessing, and we've got some meat on the table, and, you know, I'm 600 and plus years old. It's like all my friends, if they were still alive, they'd be retired, and here I've been working this whole time. And so he sits, and he relaxes, and after a trying season, can I just say I don't begrudge him of that. He deserved a break. I, I, but he also, though in the break, found out that the human tendency is after we come through a season of difficulty or a season of busyness or a season of stress that we tend to let our guard down. And I, I've preached on this before twice. It's the only message I've preached twice since I've been the pastor here since the March of last year, the, da- the danger of transitions in our lives. And how Peter, in a transition, when Jesus Christ was arrested, he failed, he failed the Lord. Because in a transition, we tend to let our guard down. And it doesn't always end well. After a big project, when you've really been focusing and working, you might re- relax and at work and you might start being less productive for a while. Or, or, or after when things are really hard and, and you're going through a trial or you're going through a heartache and, and you really depend on the Lord, but after the heartache is done and the trial is passed, you kind of have a letdown because you're not so dependent on the Lord's daily help anymore. Or when you go on vacation and it's all fun and, and there's no schedule and then it's, you find it's easier to drop the protections in your life. I don't know about you, but for me, I've always had to be mindful of the transitions in my life. After I come through a season of busyness or a season of hardship, and I, it's time for me just to sit, I deserve the break. And I imagine maybe that's what Noah was feeling. But he finds out soon that even Noah, a man of faith like that, was susceptible to an unguarded moment. Look down in verse 20. It says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. Listen, Noah's no longer having to be a preacher of righteousness. He's not swinging a hammer anymore. And you can imagine that this is a life he's really enjoying, in that you know he no longer has to stand in the face of ridicule. He no longer has the ultimate purpose of building an ark to save mankind. He doesn't have that pressure on his shoulders. shoulders. Now he's just a farmer. The pressure's off. The vines are producing, life is better, the danger is past, and he's unguarded. Look up at verse 18. It says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. What's interesting to me in all this is that uh, Noah and his family are doing what God told them to do. God said, What I want you to do is be fruitful and multiply. I want you to go and I want you to start new. You're going to be the, the, the first family of the human race. And God had blessed them. He told them to be fruitful. That's what they're doing. Him and his sons and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they're replenishing the earth. And I just want to note, too, that Ham's son, Canaan, is mentioned in this passage. That's Noah's grandson. And we'll find out a little bit more why. But let me just remind you that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Okay, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So these are, this is Moses writing these words for the children of Israel. Because the children of Israel were about, do you remember why? Uh, what they were about to do, probably, as they were reading this book. They had just left Egypt and they were going where? Into where? Where were they going? Canaan. Right? The promised land, also called Canaan. And then we see now the word Canaan here. The name that they would recognize. 
And this is for the children of Israel as they're reading it. This Canaan would be somebody they're familiar with. Now, they weren't familiar necessarily with Noah's grandson, Canaan, but they were certainly familiar with the Canaanites. And this is good for them to know the nature of the character of the Canaanites and where they came from. So I just want to remind you that this is for the children of Israel. And we'll look a little bit more at Canaan in a little bit. But the point, though, in verses 18 and 19 is that Noah and his sons were doing what they were supposed to do. They were just going about their business. God had promised to bless them and he was blessing them. And th- but what I want you to see is that it, it emphasizes the thought that unguarded moments happen when things are going well. When the pressure is off, that's when we might tend to leave the back door unlocked. When, when the trial is over, that's when we might forget to leave a window closed. It's, it's after we pass the officer that we stop looking at the speedometer. In case you're wondering, yes, that happened to me recently, which is why it's on my mind. That's what Noah did. He let his guard down. And notice what contributes to his unguarded moment. Look at verse 21. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Listen, it was magnified by alcohol. His unguarded moment was magnified by alcohol. And understand, there was nothing wrong with planting a vineyard, unfermented wine or grape juice. It's part of God's provision. The vine in the Bible is viewed positively. Jesus turned water into wine or unfermented grape juice in John chapter 2. But Noah's mistake was drinking grape juice after fermentation to the point of drunkenness. And I know it's not popular to preach on some of these things, but I just want to point out the fact, don't ignore that the first mention of alcohol in the Bible is strictly negative. See, it plays a major role in the danger, in in this sinful episode. And I'm not preaching a message today on the dangers of alcohol, although the Bible's full of help in that area. But I will say this, that alcohol is a poison to the mind, it's a poison to the body, it destroys people's lives, it's destructive in nature, and it should have no place in a Christian's life. People justify it, and they excuse it, and they say that alcoholism is a disease, but the Bible says, it calls it drunkenness, and it labels it as a sin, not a disease. Proverbs 21 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And you tell me, as a Christian, that something that's labeled that it's deceptive in nature, that it could be good for you on a social level? I don't buy that. First mention in the Bible is negative, and we've got to be careful of it. Besides the effects that it can have on your mind and the effects that it can have on your body, it most certainly contributes to when we let our guard down. When a person is under the control of alcohol, they're not nearly as watchful. They're not nearly nearly as diligent and vigilant. They find themselves in situations doing things they never would if they were in their sober minds. How many mistakes have people made being under the influence of something else that they would have never done in their right and sober minds? So let's look at the effects of Noah's unguarded moment. It leads first to moral compromise. See, Noah's drinking of fermented wine led to drunkenness and then nakedness. And both are sins. 
Drunkenness, Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Listen, anything that you do as a child of God that puts you under the control of something other than the Holy Spirit is a sin. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. And the point of that passage is not that we're not to drink, although that's an application for sure, but that we should never be under the control of anything other than the Holy Spirit himself. And when we are, we put ourselves in a position to become the slave to what we're submitting to. So drunkenness is wrong, but so is nakedness. And Noah finds himself naked. Habakkuk 2.15, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. And we all know, and I don't have to preach or talk about this long, there is a strong connection between drunkenness and immorality. People let their guard down when they're not thinking straight and, they, and it leads to immorality and it did in Noah's life right here. He's laying in his tent naked and we, if you say, well, I don't understand what's wrong with that. Well, first, be careful of being callous to the things our culture says is okay because I think it's affecting us. But number two, the fact that his sons respond the way that they respond shows that there was something going on here that was immoral. It was not right and God was not pleased with it. So as if Noah's moral compromise wasn't bad enough, it also affected his son Ham. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. So there's a lot of speculation. I'm just going to get through this part. There's a lot of speculation about what this verse refers to. Some say that Ham did nothing wrong. They say that the curse that was pronounced was on Canaan. And they, they believe that maybe his son Canaan was the one that did wrong. But if it was Canaan's wrong, my question is, when you get down to verses 26 and 27, why is Ham not blessed? I mean, if this, was, if this was Canaan's sin, why wasn't Ham blessed? I mean, God bypassed Ham, and I'm just going to believe what the Bible says. and says that Ham did something. It was Ham that did the wrong. And then there was a prophetic curse passed on to his descendants, specifically Canaan, because of his actions. Say, well, what exactly did Ham do? Well, some believe that saw his nakedness is a euphemism for a greater sin, a physical sin, and that Ham violated Noah in some way. Others say that Ham violated Noah's wife and that Canaan was a result of that unholy union. But the problem is that the text says Noah uncovered himself, which means that Noah uncovered himself. This was Noah's unguarded moment. So where the scripture speaks, and this is a good interpretation rule, where the scripture speaks, then we speak. But where the scripture is silent, we're silent. The best conclusion that we can come to is this, that Ham saw his father, and instead of responding with righteousness, he responded with sinfulness. Verse 22b says that he went and told his brethren without. So it appears, here's what it appears like from scriptures, that Ham looked at Noah dishonorably, and then he made light of it to his brothers. See, rather than going out and say, guys, um, our dad has put himself in a really bad position. We need to help take care of this. We need to do something for him. It may have been more like, hey, guys, you want to come see something hilarious? Hey, guys, you want to come and see something that's really funny? And listen, by the way, if he had done something to Noah, why would he go and tell his brothers about it? So I believe that Ham 
walked by his tent. He saw this compromised position his father is in, this unguarded moment. And rather than treat his father with, with honor and rather than try to deal with the immorality, he goes to his brothers and he's laughing about it, making light of it. In Noah's unguarded moment, caused Ham to respond flippantly about his father's morality and his father's honor, and he responded sinfully. It led, so Noah's unguarded moment led to Ham's moral compromise as well. And, it, and this leads to the second effect is that it leads to moral compromise, but it also can have family impact. See, Noah's choice to get drunk and uncover himself affected Ham. Ham shows disrespect to Noah because of it. He tells his brothers in a mocking way rather than a righteous way. And we learn a couple things about Ham in the process. Number one, he has no shame when it comes to moral failure. It doesn't bother him. But number two, he has no respect or honor toward his father. And listen, I have to say this because it's in the text. Making light about immorality is no laughing matter. See, innuendos and jokes... And I know this sounds really practical. And why are you getting down to these details? Because I don't believe that joking about immorality should have any place in a conversation among God's people. And I think we walk the line a little bit sometimes with the, with the innuendos and the implications and the things that we laugh at or the things that we snicker at. And it's the culture we live in because they laugh at those things and it starts to affect us. But according to this passage, immorality is no laughing matter. It never should be. And if your conversations with, with God's people ever turn to the innuendos or the jokes, we've got to be careful to turn that off as soon as it gets turned on. It's no laughing matter, nor is it a light thing for God's people to dishonor their parents. It's the fifth commandment. Ham's character is revealed to be poor, which is one of the reasons God chooses not to bless him. He's making light of immorality. He's not honoring his father. And listen, I know there's a balance. Ham's ultimately responsible, but Noah also bears some responsibility. His decision to drink and uncover himself affected Ham. And it's important that we as parents recognize that when we, our impact on our children is probably greater than we realize when it comes to these things. See, yes, they should resist immorality. We should teach them to resist immorality. We should teach our children uh, to honor their parents. And, but we play a role in it when they don't. See, if we create an environment that puts them in a position uh, to, to laugh at sin or to not respect us, then we're contributing to it. And we've got to be careful of the things we expose our children to at home. They're going to see plenty of things in their lives from the world. They're going to be exposed to plenty of things in their lives. I mean, just dealing with, with our daughter uh, it's in working and working and she comes home and she tells us some of the things that her co-workers are saying in front of her and it just breaks my heart and, and it grieves me. But, but in the end, she, that's going to happen in their lives. So we have to prepare them to understand there's a clear line. What you're going to see and hear at work, what you're going to be exposed to in the world, that has nothing to do with the Jet family home. We're going to stay as far away from that as we can. I don't want her to think, my children to think that, well, you know, what I hear at work, I, I kind of hear, you know, innuendos similar to that at home. No, I want her to know there's a very clear line. We want to make sure that we guard our families, we guard our children because of the things we expose them to could have a lasting impact on their future. The great danger of a parent's unguarded moment is often its impact on our children. Dads, 
If you can't control your anger, it breeds more anger in your children. Moms, when you're frustrated and you lash out, it contributes to an environment where that becomes commonplace. Parents, our habits and traits are magnified in our children. If our child observes a parent uh, who deals with certain weaknesses, that raises the likelihood of their repeating that weakness. What we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. You've heard that before. What we do in an unguarded moment could give our children license to take it a step further. We've got to be careful here. Noah bore responsibility, and I don't want to overlook it, but the bigger takeaway is this. I have to apply that because it's there. But the bigger takeaway is this, the stark contrast between the way Ham responded to this, to this immorality and, and the way that Shem and, Ham, and Japheth responded to it. That really gets, it starts to get us to the point in that our response to the unguarded moment is what makes the difference. I'll say that again. That starts to get us to the point today in that it's not the unguarded moment as much as it is our response to the unguarded moment. Look at verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. They, they carefully walked backward. It's as if two, two of them took a blanket or a garment together and they put it one shoulder here and another shoulder there and they walk into the tent backwards so as to not look on their father and they go to Noah and they, without looking, they lay it on Noah to cover him so that they won't see the nakedness and, and commit the same kind of act or sin that their brother had. Their response was godly. They wanted nothing to do with moral compromise. They sought to honor their father. They wanted to stop the sin. And they wanted to stop disrespecting their father. They were more concerned about making it right than making Noah a spectacle. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful when children, and I say children, I mean they're probably a few hundred years old. But I'm thankful for children that stand for right. Ham's response was immorality and dishonor, but Shem and Japheth, their response was righteousness. And listen, we're we're starting to get to the point today, and I really want you to focus in, because this could make a real difference in your life if you view this correctly. Their immediate responses to the unguarded moment had far-reaching consequences on their future. That's the other effect. You've got moral compromise, you have family impact, and then you have far-reaching consequences. One moment turns into far-reaching consequences. Look at verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. He responds, honestly, he responds correctly. He doesn't try to minimize the event. Rather, he focuses on how his sons responded. Look at verse 25. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. First, what are you, I, I just want to help you understand. You say, well, why is, is Canaan getting cursed for Ham's decision? Well, understand that Noah's not just hexing Canaan. He's not, you know, hexing him with a magic potion. Uh, His words are prophetic. See, what he's done is Noah has observed the kind of character that Ham has. And he knows Canaan, and I'm sure he has seen the same traits in Canaan. And and he knows their lives are going to be magnified. Uh, Their character is going to be magnified in their descendants. So under the direction of God, what Noah is doing is he is merely pronouncing the kind of people that will come from Ham and Canaan. Okay, focus in here. Okay, focus. 
that Noah is not saying you are destined to live like this. He is saying that God has given me a vision into the future, a prophecy which is different than the way things work now. We have God's word, that's all the prophecy we need. But back then, the Holy Spirit led Noah to say, you cursed will be Canaan, and that the kinds of things that Ham has done today will be the trademarks of the Canaan's descendants. The, the way that Canaan's descendants will operate will look very similarly to how things look today inside the tent. Understand, Noah wasn't hexing. He was pronouncing a, a, a curse or a prophecy. And he was saying the kind of people that Canaan will be will be like this. Second, understand that whether or not we think it's fair, the sins of parents affect children. Children won't be judged for my sins, and I'm thankful that my children won't stand before God for my sins, but my sins do affect them. They, they see it, they pick up on it, they pick up on my habits. And See, Canaan was going to be a, would lead to a morally corrupt people. Remember, Moses is writing this for the children of Israel. They would read these words with an understanding of Canaan. And as they read this, they would say, oh, okay, well, that's where Canaan came from. Because they're looking around at the Canaanites in the land and they're seeing the debauchery and the prostitution and the pagan worship and all the evil that comes with Canaanites. And they're saying, oh, no wonder they're like that because that's how their forefather Canaan was. It's starting to click with them in their minds. They're saying, that's where Canaan came from. And that man's sin, Canaan, Ham and Canaan, their traits have affected generations of people. So look at the other effect that Canaan would deal with. Look at verse 25. Noah says that, there, that Canaan would be a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. Look at verse 26, the end of verse 26. It says, Canaan shall be his servant. Look at the end of verse 27. Canaan shall be his servant. Listen, the result of a flippant view of immorality was enslavement. And the point made here is when we're weak in our response to sin, it will likely become our master. If you don't take sin seriously in your life, if you let it go and you let it remain hidden and you don't deal with it, you will one day find yourself serving that sin. That's the takeaway here. And here's the big picture that we're getting to. Again, we're coming down to it, is that disobedience leads to consequences. When we disobey, we, we may choose what we disobey in, but we don't get to choose the consequences. I may choose today the decisions I make, and I may even choose to sin. I may even choose to do something that God's not pleased with, but I don't get to choose what it looks like tomorrow. I don't get to choose my consequences, nor do I get to choose how much it impacts my family in the future. But on the other hand, we see in verses 26 and 27, look there, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Look at verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. See, in short, God curses disobedience, but he blesses obedience. Shem, as we know, would become the nation of Israel. Abraham would be born from that line, and that would lead to the Jewish nation, and, and eventually Jesus Christ himself would come from the line of Shem. You talk about a good legacy. Japheth, you know, those that would, would Japheth, uh, his descendants would, would go north and west into Europe and eventually into the Americas. They would become the nation of the Gentiles, which most of us in this room are Gentiles. And be, and, but God promised to enlarge them and be blessed in the tents of Shem. And I'm telling you, we have been blessed by the blessings of the Jewish nation. 
because Jesus Christ came from that Jewish nation. And if we're saved, he died on a cross for our sins. And I've been blessed in the tents of Shem. Shem. And you have too. That's what becomes of these two other brothers. Shem and Japheth are blessed because of their obedience. Canaan is cursed because of Ham's disobedience. That's the motif. Is that obedience leads to blessing. I'm sorry, disobedience leads to cursing. Obedience leads to blessing. And you say, okay, well, that's simple enough. That's the result of the unguarded moment. But I want you to think about it. It goes a step further. See, it's not just the presence of the unguarded moment that has consequences and effects. It was the response to the unguarded moment that had consequences and effects. And I know that doesn't seem significant, but I just want you to listen, focus in here. It wasn't just that Noah let his guard down, because that happens. And we may say, we may act like, well, I don't let my guard down. I'm vigilant. I'm sober. I'm diligent. I don't let my guard down. But if you're human, there will be times where you have a letdown. The biggest effects were not that there was simply a letdown. The biggest effect was based on how the folks involved in the story responded to the unguarded moment. So let me say it again. It's not the moment. It's the response to the moment. See, we all fail because we're human. Lock in here. We all fail because we're human. We all have unguarded moments at times. We will all at times deal with unguarded moments when we relax too much or we leave a spiritual door open or a window down. It happens. Should we do our best to avoid it? Absolutely we should. We shouldn't view unguarded moments flippantly or as no big deal. We see how it affected Ham. But listen, if you're human, you are going to slip up. If you're human, you are going to have an unguarded moment at some point. There will be times when you say what you shouldn't. There will be moments when you make a choice that doesn't really reflect who you actually are. There will be times when you click on a link out of impulse and you regret it. There will be times that you will take a drink and you regret it. There will be times that you send a text and you immediately wish you could take it all back. We are all prone to unguarded moments, but that's not the point of the passage. The point is how we respond to the unguarded moments. See, Noah was was wrong But he didn't excuse himself, and he didn't excuse Ham's actions. Shem and Japheth, they weren't even involved in the moment, but they were responding with righteousness. Ham responded to an unguarded moment with moral compromise, which led to long-term consequences. Think about it. This was Noah's one blight on this otherwise clean resume. This moment was not his finest. But listen, and I want you to get this today. This moment is a blight on his resume But at this moment did not define Noah. See, we often will look at a clean resume, but we look at the one flaw and we focus on the one flaw. But when you read about Noah in Hebrews chapter 11, he's in the Bible's hall of faith because of his exploits on the ark. Not his moment in the tent. I'm going to say that again because I think maybe we missed it. Noah's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because of his exploits on the ark, not because of his unguarded moment in the tent. See, the unguarded moment didn't define Noah because he responded correctly. On the other hand, Ham's response forever defined him and his entire family. 
See, for generations, Canaan was defined by immorality and enslavement, not because of the unguarded moment, but because of Ham's response to the unguarded moment. Listen, we will all face moments of weakness. You will have moments of failure, and they feel devastating. I mean, it's not the failure, though, that defines you. It's your response to the failure that defines you. And I hope you're getting it this morning because I'm passionate about it and I want you to be too. It's not your failure that has to define you. It's your response to the failure that defines you. Okay, so what do I do when I have an unguarded moment and I slip up and I make a mistake? Well, what you do is you humble yourself before God. You confess your sin to him and you accept his forgiveness. You see, here's the thing. God doesn't want our label to be failure. He wants our label to be forgiven. God's not looking to just stamp a failure on our foreheads. No, he wants to stamp forgiveness on our lives. He doesn't look at your one failure among all the other things that you've done that were positive for him and say, well, no, that one failure cancels out everything else. He didn't do it for Noah, and he won't do that for you. See, it all depends on our response to the unguarded moments. And maybe we look when we should have turned away. Maybe we speak when we should have been silent. Maybe we yell when we should have been patient. Maybe we sleep when we should have been awake. Maybe we get angry when we should have walked away. There will be failure, but the failure does not have to define you. Noah had many great moments and one unguarded moment, but the Bible doesn't focus on the one. Here's how it describes Noah if you read the rest of the Bible. Ezekiel 14, 14 calls Noah righteous, along with Daniel and Job, two men I'd love to have my name next to. 2 Peter 2 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. You know what 2 Peter? Peter doesn't say Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but did you see what he did in the tent? Hebrews 11 says this about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. God doesn't write Noah off because of one unguarded moment. The Bible labels Noah with words like righteous and preacher, faith, fear the Lord. And friend, to you, my message today is stop operating as if your failures define you because God does not look at you that way. Your response to your failures defines you. Let that be your label. You won't always prevent the unguarded moments, but you can respond correctly when they happen. And there's some in this room today, and and you have one label on your life that all of us have, and it's found in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. It's the one, fail, one label we all bear. Even Noah, even this preacher, even every good, dress, well-dressed person in this room has the label sinner on their lives. And yet, just to remind you that God is not looking to stamp failure on your life. He wants to stamp forgiven. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in your place for your sin. And if you would simply accept his payment for your sin, he'll change your label from sinner or failure to forgiven this morning. And you can leave today with a different label from God. 
He, he's not interested in labeling you as failure. We well, you do do that yourself because your sin nature. But you don't have to leave with that label today. Sinner, you can leave forgiven. Christian, have you been defied by some unguarded moment in your past? I don't want to get into all these because I know that we all have a past. And our list of failures is so long. You have a tough time escaping some failure in your past. Let me just remind you this. If Noah could escape the label that we see here in Genesis 9 that could have been given to him. If God would replace that label with words like preacher and righteousness and faith, he can change your label this morning. See, it's not about the moment, it's about your response. And if God can redeem Noah from a mistake like this and label him with words like the ones we've read, he can overcome that lingering, unguarded moment in your life that you think defines you. Because some, even in this room, might have an unguarded moment that you look back on and you're ashamed. And you're embarrassed. And you wouldn't want anybody to know what, what's happened in your tent. And you're looking at your life and you're thinking, all God sees is a failure. And you can't escape it and you can't sleep. And you think it defines you. But let me tell you, the only problem with that is in your own heart. Because God has a different stamp and he's just waiting to change it. If you would stop focusing on the failure and receive his forgiveness. Amen. I mean, Noah's sin in the tent is, has been preserved for all to see. And yet when God refers to Noah label, later, he doesn't talk about it at all. And there's things in your life and in your past, and I know they hurt, and I know they're shameful, and I know they're embarrassing, but they don't have to define you. We all have unguarded moments. It's not the unguarded moments that define us. It's our response to the unguarded moments that define us. And if you would simply humble yourself before God and confess that failure, that sin... And say, God, I won't live by my label. I want to live by your label. Let him change your label. Then he can change your future. Just like he did for Shem and Japheth. But if you refuse, if you refuse to respond correctly to that unguarded moment, your future may be like Canaan's. And that you're enslaved and you cannot get past that one moment in which you failed. You can't find in your heart to humble yourself before God. You can't find in your heart to ask forgiveness because you think he just can't. But listen, there's no unguarded moment beyond the reach of God. Don't let the moment define you. If you want God's blessings for the future, respond with obedience. If not, your future will be defined by your inability to respond correctly. Unguarded moments are no fun. They're embarrassing. They're shameful. We can't always avoid them. But we can always respond correctly to them with humility and confession and embrace the forgiveness label and leave that failure label behind. God doesn't look at you like fa- as a failure. He looks at you as forgiven.
if you'll respond correctly. Let's stand together, every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.